It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wilsoncroft. On today's episode, a Premier League game is postponed for the first time due to fan protests. What does that say about Manchester United and English football as a whole? Has breaking into Old Trafford gone too far or sent an important message? We'll get all the answers shortly. Meanwhile, Chelsea's women put on a show to reach the Champions League final and we'll talk heartbreak endings all on this week's episode of The Game. To help me through it all, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Matt Dickinson. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Very well, Hugh. Another uh, quiet weekend in the fun factory. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a pretty quiet weekend when it came to the, the Manchester United versus Liverpool game, which we, of course, uh, previewed at length. Um, so at the moment, Jurgen Klopp's race for the Champions League still intact. He will be delighted. Uh, we'll get a chance to discuss that. Well, we don't know when, but it was it was a remarkable weekend, wasn't it, for the Premier League? Um, the first time in the competition's history, a game postponed due to a fan protest. Many peacefully outside of Old Trafford, of course, against the club's involvement in the European Super League. Many also unhappy, as they have been for many years, I think, with the ownership of the club, the Glazer family, of course. A little bit earlier on, I caught up with the Times Northwest football correspondent, Paul Hurst. I started by asking him to outline exactly the events of the day. The protest yesterday was split into two parts. One, one group was at the Lowry Hotel where the United squad was staying. Um, they were trying to prevent them from leaving the the hotel. But the main protest was outside Old Trafford. I'd say at least, you know, a couple of thousand people stood um, on the forecourt, which is behind the East Stand. Um, and they started gathering around one o'clock, two o'clock. And then I think when it got to just after two o'clock, about half two, a, a few a couple of hundred managed to get into the stadium. They managed to somehow gain access to a, a, a door that was next to the Munich tunnel, uh, went through, uh, ran through the, uh, the disabled part of the, the, the quadrant in the corner and just ran onto the pitch and you know, had, had, a, had a bit of fun on the pitch. One of them scored a, picked up a ball and scored a fantastic goal in front of the uh, East and uh, a lovely overhead kick while his friend filmed him. And then they, they started leaving after about sort of 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, then the police started moving in once the fans had been evicted from the, the stadium and it started to get a little bit ugly then. Uh, there were the bottles and cans being thrown at the police uh, as they were pushing the protesters back. They pushed them up some at Busby Way and you know kept them up there. Um, and then we all expected the game to to start, but or the fan the the players to be allowed to to leave the hotel uh, and for the game to start. But the the fans kept the the players at the hotel. They wouldn't let them leave. So the game got called off around half past five. So. You know, as, as far as the protesters were concerned, it was mission accomplished, really, because they wanted to to stop the game or at least disrupt it to to bring attention to their kind of fight against the Glazers, and so they they certainly uh, uh, did that. There are so many ways of looking at this. I've been speaking to so many people, you know, various clubs, neutrals, but fans of Liverpool, Manchester United as well. Some backing the fans, even the fans that went into the stadium, um, backing their cause, supporting their actions, others embarrassed by it, saying, you know, you can never sort of condone what has happened. Even big names, I know we reflect on Sky Sports, but Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher were there and you never really felt the sense that they were so, sort of totally against the actions. Um, 
And those are just two big figures. I know, like I say, there are many, many more views, but there are so many ways of looking at it. I just really wondered where you sat. Well, I, I think basically that I died, you know, the violence, you know, we uh, don't con- condone that at all. I mean, you, what, two, two police officers got injured yesterday. One of them with quite a nasty cut to the, to the face. So that's, that's not nice. No one wants to see that. I just think that the fans would argue that they are that, that they had spent the last sixteen years um, getting nowhere in their quest to get rid of the glazes or at least highlight the issues that are surrounding the, their ownership. So personally, I, I don't see anything wrong with what they did yesterday in terms of you know getting into the stadium. I think that's a legitimate form of protest. Um, I think they wanted to bring attention to the to the money that's been draining out of the club and and they, and they did that you know the, the glazers just haven't been listening to the to the fans for the last 16 years and the only time that Joel Glazer has spoken to the fans up until the last couple of weeks was was 16 years ago i mean what what kind of a uh, you know a chairman does that it's, it's just really kind of um, poor ownership from from them they just don't seem to have a uh, an interest in the club whatsoever. So, uh, the, the, from the viewpoint of the United fans, I think they've been so annoyed at the, that they've not been listened to for the last sixteen years. So, they've finally taken matters into their own hands. And uh, the, the Super League, obviously, just was the the trigger for this. You know, ev- everyone's so angered about about United United being like leading the charge really into the Super League uh, without any fans consultation. So. Uh, to be honest, I can understand why they were really angry. Aside from the Super League, though, what are the things that these Manchester United fans would want the, the Glazers to do differently? I, I know, look, f- speaking personally, I think Manchester United need a new stadium. They're meant to be a club at the sort of forefront of world football, and many other clubs have been developing those over the past 20 years, You know, whether that be a totally new stadium or just improvements as well. But on the football side of things, um, the, the academy side of things, the infrastructure side of things, what are the Glazers not doing right? Well, I, th- I think they're just taking money out of the club every year. That, that, that money could be used to to buy a new player, to help the stadium, you know, improve the stadium, help the academy even more. One of the things that really annoys the fans uh, is, is the fact that, and what they want to see changed now, is the fact that uh, there are... There's a two-tier um, share scheme at the moment whereby the Glazers have a, a different class of share which gives them more voting rights or gives them voting rights. You can buy shares in Man United but not have the same voting rights as the uh, as the Glazer siblings, which is, to me, is just uh, it just doesn't make any sense at all. You know, so it's like a they're inviting people to you know they're allowing people to be involved in the running uh, you know to buy parts of the club shares in the club but but they don't have any say in what happens which is just uh, just doesn't make sense in my opinion so that's what the fans want to see they want to see equal opportunities for you know all shareholders um rather than a two-tier system and they want to see independent directors on the board as well just to give them a bit more of a, a say in what's going on they, they want people who are interested in the in, in the football club rather than those that are interested in their dividends and their the, the money that they take out every year. These pitches would have been beamed all over the world um, and the reputation of Manchester United, look, for some enhanced by seeing fan power and exactly how far fans were prepared to take it. But for others, it would leave a, a, a bad taste in the mouth, particularly as you mentioned, you know, injuries to, to police officers and just the fear for those in, in the stadium as well than those in the Lowry Hotel. Um, do you think this will enhance the cause of Manchester United's fans or work against them? You know, uh, uh, given what you've said, is there any way the Glazers will now sit up and listen? I don't think the Glazers will listen. I think it's, um, or make any kind of changes, but I don't think that will stop the United fans carrying on protesting. I just think it's, uh, it'll be the first of many. And I, I, to be honest, I, I, I don't think many of the fans who were there, yes, they do expect any change to happen just because the, the Glazers were interested in their their money um, over the club. So I, I, I think they will. these kind of protests will continue happening, but whether they, I, I don't think they will have any impact. It, it will be very difficult to persuade the Glazers to, to, to sell this, uh, to sell the club or to find anyone who's willing to spend you know, how much, you know, one, two, three billion pounds to to buy it. Just on a general point, we've had these conversations a lot over the last uh, few weeks with the European Super League as well, but 
will English fans get to the point that they almost accept that this is almost the, the business that they helped build and uh, maybe we've gone too far down the road? Manchester United have, have happily spent under previous owners lots of money, broke records, broke records for salaries in football. They've enhanced their brand. Even Ed Woodward's been lauded for the way that he's been able to um, produce money into the club in terms of Manchester United and marketing deals. Um, you know, that that is now the industry, isn't it? And and you wonder whether not just fans of Manchester United, but fans of, of all clubs will realise that unfortunately... As great as the Premier League has been, you know, it, it's been built off big money. Yeah, that is one of the unfortunate um, consequences of, of the modernisation of football, isn't it? You're right. But, you know, what's, I don't know why that would stop, you know, why fans shouldn't be allowed to kind of protest against it. Um, you know, they, they are being kind of withdrawn from the from the clubs and the the actual the actual involvement in the clubs for, for quite some time, the fans and, you know, football's it has become this kind of bubble really where, where, where the players and the clubs are so kind of far removed from, from fans, you know, they, they don't talk to them, you know, they're kind of like in, left in a bubble and I'm not talking about a COVID bubble, but you know, like a living in their own kind of world really where they don't really have any kind of uh, interaction with fans. And so I just think it's, and that, the fans have almost become kind of secondary, really. Even if you pay your, you know, your money and you go and watch them, you don't really have a say in the running of the club and the kind of the day-to-day aspects of it. So that that's gonna that will annoy a lot of them, and that's why you know that's why they that's why they've taken this kind of action. Mm. Do you expect? And I know lots of people have mentioned it recently, but government legislation, new laws that stop owners from having. You know, like like you say, even a two tiered voting system. How how that's even allowed? I don't even know. But surely our government now needs to step in and do something. It certainly wouldn't be beyond a populist politician like Boris Johnson to to get involved. And you know, it's it's. And I was talking to someone who was involved in the in in the in the discussions with government the um, last week, and, and he was only acknowledging that that is. You know that's the case. They they only really suspect that that Boris Johnson's getting involved in this because of all the because it it will, it will be a vote winner for him. Do you know what I mean? And it, it would be a a good distraction to what's going on in in his life at the moment with all the other um, scandal, etc. So I, I think you will see a push from government to to get involved in this to to kind of at least push this issue of fifty plus one or of the more fans um being you know ownership of, of clubs. So yeah, I think you will see uh, the, the government being keen to to be involved in um in helping to 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 to, to kind of try and change how how clubs are run purely for the fact that it will give them you know, um, popularity amongst the the people because you know everyone loves football, don't they? It's uh, you know there's a vast, uh, a huge percentage of the population who are interested in it and will have seen those pictures uh, on Sunday and thought, right, yeah, let's um, you know that it will have shocked them as well. I'm as encouraged as I ever have been that Boris Johnson might do something positive. Brilliant, Paul Hurst. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on the Game Podcast. Our thanks to Paul Hurst there, um, sharing his views on, on everything that's happening at the moment with uh, Manchester United. Let's go back to Matt Dickinson, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. Um, Matt, Matt, how do you judge this day um, in terms of English football and the history of Manchester United? Was it a shameful day or was it a day of hope? I think we have to see it in quite a broad context, don't we? I think there are... You know, specific issues, obviously the the Super League, the timing of the Super League announcement at the end of a pandemic when fans have been locked out is another issue. I think there's there's the fan frustration. I think there is a an eagerness to get out on the streets and make a voice heard. And I think that has to be set against a much broader context of fan impotence. I think I think that's the big issue here, and obviously one that's going to lead us on to you know gov- the government have launched a fan-led review. I think we've we're, we've reached the uh, a point in a cycle that's been building up um, over a good two or three decades, where a section of fans feel like the, the game has sort of changed, and, and they've become maybe more distanced. And this was a bit of a sort of shout of 
of, of listen to us, maybe of defiance to that. And I think so. So I think it's had some historical context and I think it's had some very obvious short term provocations as well. Gregor, what do you think about what, what yesterday said about about English football and the fans relationship uh, to the game? Yeah, as I said in the last couple of weeks, it, we've reached the end of our road. You know, we hear so much that football we, football is a business. That's the line that's trotted out over and over again. But I just feel like we've come to an end point. And it's like, there was always a kind of unwritten rule, even though, you know, wealthy people buy football clubs and they've had various reasons for doing so, that you don't extract money from the club. <laughs> and I think that's what that's what's kind of the the, the Super League there's been so many protests against the Glazers for a long time, obviously, but this was like the last the last point. It was like clearly they're in it for profit. We knew that anyway, but this kind of this is a, a path that's that we're going down and all these clubs, all these owners are now trying to enrich themselves. Because we can we, we say that people are in it for to make money, but the only way that people really make money from football clubs is by an appreciation and value of the club. So if they run the club well and the and the Premier League rights have have blown up, you know, the value of of just owning a club in the Premier League, the club is has appreciated in value. But that's kind of been palatable. Fans say, yeah, okay, you know, they're funding the club or they're covering some losses. If the club appreciates in value, fair enough, they might make a, a bit of money in the end. But the Glazers have extracted multi-million pound sums sums of money in, you know, dividends, interest payments, administration fees, whatever you want to call them. And that is distinctly unpalatable and I think that's you know that's something that's been rumbling away for a long time and this is just kind of I think what's happened in the last couple of weeks is just given Manchester United fans not an excuse but a kind of a final push to say we're not having this anymore and personally I think that's a good thing. Alison what do you think of all of this? I'm a bit gobsmacked I I don't even know what's really going on here are the United fans (sighs) emboldened by the fact that super League protests were so successful and feel oh actually if we turn up we might we might be able to get a, a few more points across about our club but I don't know what those points are I mean Gregor I can't I, I, I who are these people Gregor who are multi-billionaires who are prepared to um, be pure be local and put money into a club and never take anything out again they don't exist I just, I just, it's just fantasy world that you think you're going to have a huge club like Manchester United owned by what a local businessman who's no. been better <laughs> by the fans and doesn't want to make any money out of it. No, I think, it's, I think a lot got... of it is anti-American. It's a lot, anti, a lot of it is anti-American. The, the distance, fans don't like the distance. They don't think the people who own the club understand the culture of the club or care about the fans and so on. They clearly don't. But, what, but if, you want, if you want, if those things are important to you, okay, okay. Do you remember not so very long ago? This this was astonishing, and it's the sort of flip side of this. The public investment fund of Saudi Arabia were going to take over Newcastle United. Amnesty International came out and said, "Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, please, please, Newcastle fans, do not let this happen. Do you not realise this is sports washing?" And there were an awful lot of Newcastle fans who wrote very eloquently and passionately saying, hey, the rest of you in the media and fans of other clubs, stop criticising the human rights record of a very rich owner. We deserve the right, Newcastle fans deserve the right to have a very generous, rich owner so we can see where we can go. That actually happened. And they're anti-Ashley. Why are they anti-Ashley? They're anti-Ashley because mainly because he doesn't seem to have a connection, even though he's British, he doesn't seem to have a connection with the club. Um and he doesn't want to uh, pump, pump, pump money into it and look passionate every game. But he didn't sanction the murder of a journalist. So you have a group of fans there who would prefer, who would prefer the uh, the amoral approach because it's the rich approach. But the, the, the game's gone bonkers. Everyone has a different moral compass on what they feel is unacceptable and acceptable. And the fans' objection to the Glazers away from the Super, Super League, so take that out of it. This was a Man United protest. They are resurrecting how angry they were with their green and gold scarves at the start of the Glazer reign. And that was about fear over their financial modelling and the fact they were overseas and they had a franchise model and they treated sport purely as a business and not as a passion. But 
they have been they've been they haven't they haven't they haven't gone into liquidation they've never been close to going out of business and they've bought lots and lots and lots of expensive players who are paid lots and lots of money first thing i'd say to that is yeah clearly we're in we're in a mental place where football football supporter morals are that are such that they would rather see uh so you know a foreign state own their football club than a capitalist who's going to enrich themselves i think that is where we are they, you know it seems that extract owning a football club purely for profit is the worst thing that anyone can do that's because it seems fundamentally opposed to what how football originated i know we've come a long way since that point but as, all i'm saying is we've come to a point where it's too much and actually as you're right alison it's it's we're in a weird weird place when Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle is okay, but you know, say Mike Ashley was was enriching himself. I don't think he is enriching himself. He will do when he sells the club. He's not extracting money every year from the club. But that is they see that as worse. I understand that's crazy. But this is the world we're living in right now. And I think the Super League and what that was proposing, which was further enrichment, greater enrichment of these individuals who own the football clubs. I think we've come to a point where we're saying we, no one wants that to be the case. We, want, we don't we want to see that happen. So I think now we've got to discuss how we can prevent that from happening. I take your point, Greg. I mean, it's obviously on the table in a way that it's never been on the table, but I, I, I'm also been fascinated by it. what is the perfect world out there. I mean, you know, this is obviously some of the, this is some of the protesters that are most... Um, uh, High-profile pictures in the papers today have the you know the fifth. There are literally fifty plus one on a you know on a banner that's being held up, and of course that's allusion to the German model. And of course, do people really want German football? Well, may, maybe some do, but there's a reason why the Premier League is the most successful league in the world is because it's had outside investment buying some of the world's biggest stars. It's not had by Munich winning the title every year for for a decade um there is a reason why yeah the premier league is you know i'm not saying the, the glazers are for that but certainly you know billionaires coming in from all different parts of the world that that sort of free market style has has led to has been one cause of the success of the league the big difficulties we've we've gone a long way down this road and it's going to be very very hard to uh, i mean i think the nearest have come to it we did a piece in the times whatever it was a couple of weeks ago whether you can put in financial regulations that effectively mean that football gets the right type of owners is is you know graham Rousseau was talking about that we did in our piece whether you can put some kind of regulation in that basically means that yeah you have people who are coming in who are not well either able or looking or uh, to um squeeze the business dry um but these are huge you know these are huge difficulties that are, are going to require legislation and does the government really want to get bogged down in that I, I, i'm still to be convinced when you're talking about Manchester united a club who have several hundred million pound turnover and they're still somehow managed to be i think 450 million pound in debt I don't, I don't think football clubs should be able to get into that much debt and I don't think about, the way that, debt to the you know debt to a benefactor owner is that allowed? You know, I, well, yeah, because then if the club is, and then that's why you have the regulations that have to at least some degree, you know, your the football club is living within its means. Like it's it's been blown up out of all proportion. That's what I'm. That's just all too big now. <laughs> I think everyone's accepting that there's too much money in the game, and with so much money in the game, and still debt and. You know, clubs imperiled further down and upward drag of resources and pressure on the pyramid, everything. It's all just become too much now. And that's what this is. You know, the, the, the Super League has kind of awoken people to that, I think. Because that, the other amazing thing is that we need to recognise is that the people protesting are the supporters of the big six. It's not It's not the rest. And they're, they're all actually calling for more like, you know, redistribution of wealth. As I said, the Liverpool supporters groups, Manchester United supporters groups, Gary Neville saying that Liverpool, Manchester United should be as two of the biggest clubs in the country. Shouldn't be trying to put themselves in a gilded cage and, and you know, to the detriment of everyone else. There is, still has to be some some semblance of community in football. Gregor, for every fan that you'll find will say, "Yeah, I want more money sharing." Will be the same. Either you'll find another fan, or potentially the same fan the next week saying, "Well, why haven't you signed Haaland for 150 million? City have just signed him." So I do think we have to, you know. We have to remember, as Alison made that point, there is a there is a massive self interest among fans. There's a fickleness among fans. There's a double standards among fans. And I'm not saying about them. I'm saying us. You know, we're all we're all part of it. There's a disenfranchisement going on, though. I think a lot of those people who were at Old Trafford are just fed up of 
I think part of the reason they felt they had to do something radical was that they have no other uh, means of objection. If those fans said, right, well, when football comes back to the fans, we're not going to renew our season ticket. Or they said, we're not going to buy a new shirt from the club shop. It would make no difference at all. Their clubs have grown out of them. So you can you can rip up your season ticket if you're a fan of a big club and nobody bats an eyelid. It's, it's a huge thing to do if you're a smaller club. If you do it in front of the director's box, there's a connection there. But the, the fans of the big clubs, they know they can they can they can dump their club. They can say, right, I'm not supporting you anymore. And it makes not one iota of difference because their club has outgrown them. They've become, as you said, Robert, they're global. And for every local fan who doesn't want to be part of it anymore, there are there are 500 who would take their place, probably more than 500, actually, and spend more. So it felt to me watching it, it felt like they were really saying, look, look at look at me, look at me, I live here, this is my club and I don't, I don't understand it anymore, I don't know it anymore and they don't need me, what can I do to make them, make them notice me because I'm a real fan. That's, I think that was partly what was at the heart of it. So let's not just dismiss that as kind of naivety. <laughs> I'm not dismissing it, I'm not dismissing it, I'm saying I think that was... Well, we're, all saying, we're, all saying, we're all saying, oh, this is football's become a big business now, that's, that's the world we live in. No, this is the point. We've come to a point where we're saying this has gone too far. The conversation has to be about what happens next. Is no, It has to be about tight, more tighter reg- regulations, government intervention, because football can't, can't govern itself. It's been repeatedly proved. So th- this, that's what we saw two weeks ago. If you, let, if, you, if you leave football to govern itself, that's the natural end point. And you see other clubs dying while they're trying to keep up. The conversation now has to be what happens to better regulate football and make it safer and make it so that it can't be just all about profit, essentially. Yeah, Manchester United's owners would say, yes, we've bought the club with a leverage debt. And yes, we pay a big amount of interest from what is made from the club every single year knowing full well that they can say to the government with the full intention that when the club is sold, that debt gets paid off and we leave it in a position that it's not in debt or the new owner, maybe we, you know, we increase the price by the amount of debt and the new owner covers it. We, we don't know, but it's so difficult for a government to say to a football club, you've got to go into a position that other businesses don't have to because you've got fans basically. And, you know, Tesco's doesn't have fans or, you know, Citigroup doesn't have fans, you know, banks don't have fans, but you do. And and your business is therefore different in some way. And and also, how do you do it once it's already there? You know, do you, do you say Manchester United? Yeah, OK, you've got leverage debt. You've, you already have it. But going going forward, other clubs can't have it. Do you see what I mean? And then other owners in the future might say, well, hold on a minute, they've got it. It's a really difficult position to be in because you can't then say, do you know what? glazers you have to just wipe out your debt you know stop there's no need for the leverage debt just pay it off within the next 24 months you get to a point where you're debt free and everyone else you've got to get to a point where you're debt free as soon as humanly possible and then we'll we'll have a total reset what can you do gregor honestly what can you do these are big questions i know well i've just the two things i've just outlined are basically impossible i mean for those people that know anything about business i've just probably outlined i've basically described a unicorn you know in in distinct detail it's impossible yeah i would say one thing we could do is improve transparency first and foremost and also yeah once people are already owners it's difficult to to deal with the way that they're 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 managing football clubs but there could also there has to be something about a licensing system or something something that allows further evaluation of how a football how a football club is being managed and i know the i know these are businesses and it's not just about how they're being managed on the field it, you know but there has to be something what happens if you lose your license perhaps and, and look, I, look I, I know this might I, mean, business, I know this might contravene business law but perhaps you're given 3 years to to sell up like i know i know these are crazy ideas and like probably not enforceable in law but these are the kind of things we have to be exploring as Alison says the fans are so helpless like people are so helpless like there's nothing they can do they've, they've protested for 15 years and the Glazers, Glazers don't even turn up at a game and they still withdraw millions and millions of pounds every year at dividends like it, this, it, it can't be allowed to you, you, there's nothing we can do to stop them now really but there must be things we can do to stop this happening again and, and particularly to stop the way that they bought the club. Yeah, and, and do you know what? As a Manchester United fan, you know, the moment they bought the club with that leverage debt just seemed in, insane to me. They basically said, we'll buy the club with this debt and don't worry, Manchester United is so popular that they'll pay for it. 
which I found to be in how English football allowed an ownership group to do that is, is madness. It meant that you or I could have found a consortium of people with some money and said, borrowed the money and just said, don't worry, Man United turn over so much money every year that they'll pay this debt off. We don't have to put anything in and we can take over one of the biggest clubs in the world. You know, it seemed to be underscored by the fact that the Glazers were billionaires, basically, in terms of the amount of money they were putting in. It didn't seem to be much at all. But look, again, that's business, isn't it? Hugh, Hugh, how, you, 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 just, you just said as a Manchester United fan. So how emotionally did you respond to the scenes on Sunday? There were some pictures that were embarrassing and sad. Obviously, you don't want to see fans of your football club fighting with police who are probably local, many of them Manchester United fans likely, um, trying to protect a stadium that's empty um, and, and being attacked. And, and obviously as a journalist, you know, seeing fans of your club throwing missiles at journalists in the ground who have absolutely nothing to do with how the clubs run. Once again, you know, that was really sad. I was proud of the people outside the stadium, you know, many, many, many more of them than went inside the stadium who were there protesting um, in a very peaceful way. And look, the people that got into the stadium and, and the ones who didn't hurt anyone by doing so, which you can say whether they whether smashing doors down is is hurting anyone or not. But for me, it was one of those things where it was, it was like, it's great to see them protesting in this way. I'm a supporter of protest and using their voice, being out on the pitch, even having the game postponed, which I actually thought would do more to get their attention than if they'd have done that and the game had gone ahead. But knowing in the back of my mind that the Glazers are not going to respond to it is the, it was the saddest thing. I, I looked at him when I, it's almost like felt resistance is futile. And it felt a bit like, again, we've spoken about it so many times, but it felt like clinging on to football of the past. You know, it's like there was a point long, long ago where many football clubs, not just Manchester United, gave up that sense of community for the sake of star players. And I've, we spoke about it with the Super League. You know, the Premier League is built off this huge investment from other countries and build it and they will come. You know, more and more fans have come, more and more money has come, TV rights have gone through the roof and it just, it never seemed to end. And, it, and for me, it's now, it's a different sport. Obviously being a franchise sport would have changed, you know, the fabric of the sport as a whole. And I can understand why fans were so unhappy about that. But when you look at where the Glazers are as owners, they're so, they're sort of the more the, they're they're at the really unsavoury end of ownership groups. But in terms of business, you know, if you were to sit down with ministers and they and outlined what the Glazers have done with Manchester United, from a business perspective, they're barely going to raise an eyebrow. You know, it's yeah, just the Glazers, be like, the Glazers, the Glazers did not sanction the state killing of a journalist. The Glazers do not go around saying we want to live in a state where you can't be homosexual i mean for goodness sake it's ridiculous that's why it's, it's going to be fascinating what this review comes back with well fascinating maybe overstating it i mean it's it's uh I, that's um i say that with respect to tracy crouch who's heading it who's a former sports minister and i think you know one of the most that's a sensible appointment to put her in charge but i think i don't know I, i'd be interested what you guys think i mean my my fear is that it'll you know it'll come back with some sort of fan representation views which are a sort of nod to the fan voice but it's going to struggle to to do anything much more drastically radical than that i i i i, I wait to be surprised and i you know i think if you know given the light that that process is ongoing now is the time to protest now is the time to shout now is the time not to throw bottles at policemen but to to make your voice heard but uh, yeah does anyone have any greater expectations other than you know we think a fan should be on a board or we think a fan voice should be heard um maybe a regulator but is that regulator going to be given a big stick the fans voice is always just going to be advisory anyway let's be honest you know you could put the fans there sharing their view on every small decision that the clubs make and the club will do something different and say we we took your concerns on board but we felt this was the right decision in the end and look for some people that might be a massive step forward I just don't see how you stop the juggernaut now. It's just, it, it, it's imp it's impossible. I feel bad for fans of, of Manchester United for feeling, as I said to Paul Hurst earlier on, helpless, because I think it is that sort of feeling now for loads of football fans. I personally, I wouldn't want to see that happen all the time at football clubs up and down the country either. I think the most sensible thing to do is for the competition really to change its rules and, and its guidelines and have strict controls over spending. 
and and do that on a as I've said before I think a three year period and that is just and I know people say well it's not competitive but I think you just got to look at a club by club basis now and say your club brings finances in at level A and it is therefore able to spend over a three year period this much money your club is at level B C D all the way down and I know what that means isn't that financial fair play uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, we need a, we certainly need a form of financial fair play, but we also need the inability to take huge amounts of money out of clubs as well. So I think that has to be part of the structure too, where or you say- Or load them we, with debt. Yeah, or load them with debt, exactly. Or you sell say, the stadium, or you all know, this is happening in the championship. All, all these things that are in peril yeah. in basically the future of these clubs. I would just wonder what proportion of the fans who protested at Old Trafford would feel if- the Premier League actually said to the the breakaway six, we are docking X number of points. I mean, a significant number of points. Or they did something very radical to really punish them and then drew up very clear guidelines on what would happen if they repeated their attempts to break away. Would they, would they feel they'd won? Would they feel great? We're not going to win the title next year because we've been docked so many points but we've won because we've really rubbed the noses of the owners in it? Or is it is it just too emotionally confused for them to realise that if you if you get what you want, your club is not going to be a big club for a bit? The punishment is that is that that's not the the question, so to speak, is it? I mean the question as if Gregor as Gregor frames it, I think rightly, is that where you know, this is sort of where is the game headed? Not about I mean, you know, I I can see the case for punishing those six clubs, but this is more about the forces that are driving the game in a certain direction. There wouldn't have been this protest if it hadn't been for the Super League protest being successful. But I don't they mean, are docking, intrinsically connected. Docking Man United 20 points doesn't make, uh, I mean, it gives the Glazers a you know headache for the next year because it gives them a bit less money for the next year but it doesn't it doesn't change their model or it change doesn't change the direction of where they want to take the club or the game it might be the only legitimate way of encouraging them to leave i think that comes down to a balance sheet doesn't it uh, it's um you know uh, you know I there think, is a I think that comes rule, down to broader broader f- football regulation which to say is mm. the fascination of this whole review about whether you know particularly a conservative administration is willing to you know come at something that's been run as a free market business and start putting putting massive regulation around it and and legislation around it and those are that's that's yeah fascinating big questions i mean it might be as simple as you can't take dividends out of a football yeah, club if absolutely. it's in debt <laughs> yeah so the owners the can't other, take any money home when the club and, still owes and the other thing that really it needs to look at is the power is not in their hands so they, as we say, we've seen that they are—they have controlled the direction of the game for for a number of years now, and the threat of the Super League was always was basically fueling that. That's gone. So now what we need to make sure is that the power is evenly distributed, or in fact <laughs> given to an independent body out with the game. So you know, as I said again, the game is not capable of governing itself. Certainly, it's proven that for many many years now. So I think. An independent regulator is probably the most important thing that can come out of the review. No puns intended. We, of course, here on the game podcast have been able to govern ourselves quite nicely for a number <laughs> of years. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Matt Dickinson. Plenty more to come from those three. We'll discuss uh, Chelsea, Chelsea's women in the Champions League as well into the final. Fantastic. That's up next. We'll talk about heartbreak endings. We'll explain that in the end and we'll look ahead to the men's Champions League semi-finals as well. Stay with us on the game. And remember, if you're enjoying it, give us a five-star review on Apple podcast or wherever you download your podcast from make sure you're subscribed to the times and the sunday times as well you can get it across all of your devices and if you sign up today you'll get yourself one month free just go online right now and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Game podcast from The Times, where we can celebrate a little bit because we've already got one English side into a Champions League final as Chelsea's women put in a stunning display to beat Bayern Munich 4-1 in their second leg and go through to a final against Barcelona 5-3 on aggregate. I'm joined by The Times football writer Molly Hudson. Molly, firstly, how are you doing? And secondly, what a game. To be honest with you, I think I've just about recovered from it. Um, it was absolute <laughs> chaos. Um, a, a brilliant game, a, a brilliant display of of women's football, a fantastic showcase uh, for a Champions League semi final. And I think it was just the absolute drama of it. With the obviously the, the same as in men's football, often away goals provide. Um, it was just absolute chaos, but but brilliant and really couldn't be happier for, for Emma Hayes and for Chelsea. The kind of feels like this is the product of, of work they've put in. I think she said yesterday she was sat in Stamford Bridge in 2012 with Bruce Buck and was watching a Champions, Women's Champions League final that was held there and said to him, this is what, this is what we want to get to. This is what we want to achieve. And, and now they've finally done it. Yeah, we'll come to Emma Hayes and, and her good work in a few moments time. But just on the specific game, I mean, in the first leg, Bayern Munich, of course, won. Chelsea looked, well, they didn't look themselves. And yesterday it was, I mean, it was totally different. What changed? Yeah, I think Bayern Munich almost played into Chelsea's hands a little bit. And they set up in the, the first leg, surprisingly, in a 3-5-2. Everyone expected them to, to line up at, in a back four, as they normally do. Um, and the wing backs, Hannah Glass, had a hand in both goals in that first leg was excellent. They they stopped Chelsea counter-attacking, which is one of their, their main threats. Frank Kirby and Sam Kerr were, were nullified. And then when we saw them line up in a back four yesterday, just as the game was about to kick off, it was almost like, why have you changed this system? You know, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. And it played out that way. There was just so much space. And I think, as Emma Hayes said after the game, if you give us that space to counter-attack, then we will. And we saw two goals that, that came from Frank Kirby, and both of which were, were on the counter-attack. And if you watch Chelsea in the Women's Super League week in and week out, you'll see they will do that to any team if you give them that space. They rode their luck at times as well, which made for a really dramatic game. But you're right, Penilla Harder, Frank Kirby, Sam Kerr, they were sensational. The advert for, for women's football, for those that missed it. I mean, it, it, once again, I think for those who aren't fans of women's football, you, you sometimes ask why, because it was it was fantastic. And some of the best players in the world at the top of their game as well. Emma Hayes, as you say, deserves credit, their manager. She's got such charisma, such character in the game as well. Such a, a great coaching mind and her emotions afterwards. You know, it, you're right. You've mentioned it already it felt like this was the fruition of so many years hard work. Just describe to us the, the the impact she's had on Chelsea after her years in charge. She's just been incredible. And I think if you speak to anybody in and around the club, they'll tell you that she's not just the manager for on the pitch. She's, she's like a mother figure to the players off it. She's the driving force in the boardroom, the way Chelsea have led the way in terms of pushing for more professionalism in the league one of the first teams to, to really invest in the women's game, to put the money in. Um, you talked there about Pinella Harder. Obviously, she came in for world record transfer fee um, last summer. So it, it shows that th this is the fruition of, of all those efforts, I think. And we were speaking to Emma when she came into a press conference, glass of champagne in her hand. 
you know, she's very, very emotional. And she was talking about the fact that this is what she'd played out ever since she was a young girl, nine years old, Kernick Street, playing, imagining she was playing in a Champions League final. And, and now she's there about to lead lead her team out in one. Um, and it, it's just an incredible achievement for her. And some of the pictures, you can really see the emotion and just how much it meant to her and the squad as a whole. Fantastic performance from them. But looking ahead to that final, it's up against Barcelona. Emma Hayes talking about how she feels it will, it will be a tricky game. But she, she also spoke about a conversation she had with Bruce Buck last year, the Chelsea chairman. And she said, I think the Champions League final next year will be Chelsea against Barcelona. So she's not only a great coach, but she's psychic as well, by the way. Um, but, but looking ahead to that game, how do you predict it will go? I think she's right in the fact that it was quite predictable that eventually a Spanish team would come good. I think both Barcelona and Atletico Madrid have kind of been there or thereabouts, but they've never quite you know, got to the final. Obviously, Atletico Madrid have done previously and they've not done too well when they got there. Um, so I think this there's been a huge improvement in Spanish women's football. Um, the strength in depth and the national team are seeing that as well. And I think Barcelona will, will be a really tough opponent. I think the positive... For Chelsea is that both Lyon and Wolfsburg, who have such vast experience in the Champions League, are already out. So in terms of winning it, both Barcelona and Chelsea have, have never done that before. So that's a positive that both of them kind of come into it off the back of that. I think for Chelsea, Magda Eriksson, their captain, came back from injury yesterday. It was such a huge, huge change to that team. She just brings this calm, this leadership and for me, that was one of the main differences between the first and the second legs against Bayern Munich. And if she stays fit, I, I think you'd, it would be easy to say that Chelsea could win, particularly over one leg. We've seen one game rather than the two-legged format. We've seen just how clinical and dangerous the, that attacking front three of Chelsea is. You'd always back them to score. Any team in the world, you'd back Chelsea to score against them. So I think I think it should be a really exciting game. And I think both teams are, are quite attacking and it, it should be another sort of chaotic game, maybe that a little bit of what we saw yesterday. Our thanks to Molly Hudson for giving us the download on uh, Emma Hayes and Chelsea. Fantastic performance by them uh, on the day. But also, I think... It's just been growing, as Molly pointed out, for some years under Emma Hayes, who is one of the most intriguing characters in the game as well. Um, but Alison, just the performance in the game and the performance over recent years as Chelsea have grown and grown under Emma Hayes has been something to behold. Yeah, it's a bit like, I don't know, maybe I can't speak for everybody, but when I watch Chelsea women, it's a bit like what I imagine watching England must be for an England fan of the men's team. I feel they represent me. They are England. They are... I know there are lots of great female clubs, but I just think Chelsea are it. They're the one I've sort of watched grow and grow and grow. Emma Hayes is the most captivating of managers. She managed to mouth an expletive on telly, but without actually saying it, but everyone knew what she'd said. She's, she's, she's done enough, pushed the boundaries. She's, uh, she's just incredibly good company. You know, if you had a fantasy manager dinner party, you'd invite her along. She'd really shake it up. I, I admire her enormously. And I watched the game and I'm not joking. It had everything. I, I cried, but then I tend to cry when I watch women's football because I think, oh, if only women's football had been as advanced when I was younger, that could have been me. I could have been on telly scoring goals. <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> anyway, that's my problem. But I did, I get very emotional. And But the game had, it had absolutely everything. Honestly, it really did. It had beautiful football, expansive football. It also and it had some amazing goals, really beautifully taken goals and the sort of goals you score once in a lifetime goals. And they're doing that at the semi-final of Champions League level. They also had comedy because the um, Bayern keeper went up as keepers do when you've got a minute left and you, you need to score the goal that'll take you through. But she didn't run back and <laughs> she sort of loitered her. She loitered around the centre circle thinking... I don't know what to do now. I mean, I've never seen that before. So that made me laugh. And I was just very pleased, very pleased for, you know, Chelsea have money. They've, they've you know, we're going back to money again. They've they've made the biggest signings. They've, they've spent their way to the top, you could argue. But they've also grown organically and each season. And I've stuck with a manager and I've got gradually better and better and better and have an identity. And um, 
oh, I do wish them well in the final against Barcelona. Important, though, for, for women's football in England to capitalise on the big names that have come in recently, Matt. Um, and, the, and the attention, you know, lots of eyes, lots of media companies investing in the, in the game as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as, as Alison says, there is no better advocate full stop than Emma Hayes. Um, I, you know, I'd, I will gush about her for as long as we like. I mean, I think she's just, as, as Alison says, she is um, brilliant company. She straddles perfectly this sort of, you know, can talk about the game and the development of players and technically, but she, she is brilliantly emotional, not in a sort of um, uncontrolled way, but just she let, she, she shows you who she is. Um, she's not afraid to do that. She's not afraid to, be herself um, when she's talking to you. You know, she, you have the most natural conversations with her. I mean, this, you sort of speak to her and just wish, <laughs> wish every manager in the game was like that. And just the the, the honesty of approach. Um, and you know, she yeah, there is not a better advocate for it. So I, I think obviously there's going to be huge attention around it. You know, history can be made, and she will feel like she's not just doing it for Chelsea or for herself, but for the women's game. I think that's another thing that she she feels like th- that she is representative of, you know, her her entire sport and um and she carries that burden um incredibly well. The goals, Gregor, um the, 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 <laughs> ridiculous. I love watching Fran Kirby play as well. She's so yeah. kind of nimble-footed, but tenacious as well. And uh, and the Bayern goal, crikey, an absolute yeah. screamer. So yeah, oh, brilliant drama. And some of the kind of you know last few minutes, then the blocks on the line and kind of clearances and you know throwing your body in where it hurts. It was just great drama. So um, yeah. But Frank Kirby was a star. Check the highlights out. If you haven't seen it, you'll see firstly a cracking goal from Bayern. But of course, an English team beating a German team in the Champions League semi-final always goes down well <laughs> as well, doesn't it? Um, look, look, Gregor, let's um, stick with you for the moment because this weekend you did see real drama elsewhere as well. Lincoln giving away a 3-0 lead against Peterborough. It saw the posh promoted to the championship. It also saw Lincoln's automatic promotion chances ended, if I'm correct. Um, yes. So we thought we'd discuss sort of heartbreaking endings because it was a what 96th minute penalty was it 96th minute yeah so P- Peter Lincoln was the only team who could who could catch Peterborough and uh, Peterborough had two games to go but Lincoln had a game in hand in midweek too so it could have gone down to the final day with a Lincoln win and as you say they were 3-0 up as late as 60, the 65th minute and then the comeback be- began if Tom was on this podcast he would be he would be I don't know, he'd probably be in tears because it was the, probably the worst refereeing decision I've ever seen in my life uh, toward a penalty to, to Peterborough. Uh, Sammy Smodick's got the ball. It's like a final last hopeful ball forward. They'd hit the crossbar. They'd had a header just an inch wide of the post. Brilliant drama. A final ball forward fell to Smodick's and he did a kind of little pirouette over the ball. And the Lincoln player literally jumped out the way because he knew he could see he was trying to buy a penalty and the ref pointed to the spot. And uh, Johnson Clark Harris scored his 31st goal of the season to give them the winner and as you can imagine the scenes were were incredible because they could have gone up on Tuesday night and the supporters mm-hmm. all turned up outside the stadium let off fireworks when they were 2-0 up prematurely as it turned out and uh, <laughs> Doncaster came back and drew 2-all and so they all, they all gathered again and you can imagine what they were thinking there was a downpour before the game so they're all drenched in their Stone Island gear <laughs> and then 3-0 and then, uh, down after an hour and then that at the end it was just it just made me think you know they could I'm not sure there's any better drama than the kind of end of season race for promotion and you know relegation battles as well in the football league because there's so much on it so much riding on it you know you, we'll talk about cup finals and those moments of great drama but it literally shapes the future promotion or relegation so there's something extra on it and every single year the football league throws up these these end of season final day kind of or final couple of days remarkable games of loaded with drama and this was one of them come back for the ages brilliant and so we thought we'd ask about heartbreaking endings elsewhere as well and our memories of them but Alison I'll start with you heartbreaking endings well first of all I think we're partly talking about endings because line of duties endings was so <laughs> rubbish so the best bit of telly the best bit of telly on Sunday was not line of duty it was I don't know if you all spotted it when Gary Neville was stood in front of the pitch at Old Trafford reeling, <laughs> off, reeling off why the fans had every right to do what they were doing. And David Jones, the anchor, tried to interrupt him with, 
do you, you surely gary you don't condone and gary reports replied this is not the time to interrupt and i just thought oh my goodness how ironic how ironic the man who likes to interrupt and believes in interrupting people to make sure they don't go down a rabbit hole uh ooh, i thought that was quite interesting but in terms of um uh, classical heartbreak endings um there's none more a memorable because what the one that immediately came to my head was the 1998 playoff final. It's the Sunderland 4, Charlton 4 1. Because Clive Mendonca's from Sunderland and he scores a hat trick against his, his club, if you like. And then Michael Gray, he's also from Sunderland, steps up to take the penalty and he can't, he's so nervous and aware of the moment. He can barely hit the ball. That emotion and pressure means it sort of trickles, <laughs> trickles towards the goalkeeper, and then Sunderland lose. I mean, and I remember watching that and sort of, sort of not crying but wailing with sort of empathy of agony. That was that was that was um, that was very sad. And um, just because I'm predictable, I would like to give a mention that heartbreaking was the way Iceland went out at Euro 2016 because I predicted months before it started that they would win it and everyone had laughed at me and then they knocked out England and I got loads of apologies and all they did was um, have a little bit of um, hubris against France who very cleverly allowed them to play a bit of football but I found that quite heartbreaking. Yeah, icebreaker as well if you like. Um, <laughs> it was funny, Alison mentions 1998 playoff final because I, I was there covering it and it was, um, it's funny when anyone mentions about, you know, what's the most dramatic stuff you've seen? It's always the one that people, um, I like throwing out because, you know, it wasn't 99 at the new camp. It was, it was, you know, it was, uh, it, 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 but it was no less dramatic. It was, you know, four all seven, six on penalties. As Alison says, the Michael Gray, I, I, I still remember it finished and I thought, right, I've now got a lot to write about this. And I walked to the uh, Wembley toilet, um, the old Wembley and just got a cold tap. And, um, doused myself in that cold tap for just because I was, I, you know, I'd know I wasn't a Charlton fan, wasn't a Sunderland fan, but it was just one of those couple of hours where you were just mesmerized and gripped and you just found yourself engaged in this lurching emotion of it all. Um, so yeah, it, it was just a spectacular. And like Gregor says, you know, when relegation and promo when, pr when promotion is hanging on stuff as well, it, it it's, it's changing the shape of more than just one match um, and one trophy. So yeah, that's that was up there. I think mine is the 2014 Champions League final. Um, Atletico Madrid against Real Madrid, of course, they're city rivals who they've lived in the shadow of for so, so long. The reason it's heartbreaking, if you don't remember, Atletico were 1-0 up until the 93rd minute when Sergio Ramos scored a header from a corner. And I think because it was Real Madrid, no one really cared about how Atletico Madrid conceded that corner. It was an overhit last ditch ball into the box. Two defenders at the back post with no Real Madrid players challenging them. And basically you thought both of them are just going to leave it to run out. The first one left it, first player left it and the second player didn't realise and it bounced off the ground and knocked into his shins as he tried to jump out the way and he conceded the corner. And just about then it was like, this is, this was, it, they were already describing it as the last roll of the dice, you know, throwing the ball forward, all the defenders were up into the box. Sergio Ramos scored the header from that resulting corner. They scored three goals in extra time. And it was actually the first time that a Champions League final, I think, had gone to extra time and actually had a winner during extra time and hadn't gone to penalties. But I think the life was just drained out of Atletico Madrid at that point in time. I was totally gutted for them. And Gabri in particular there, Gabby, sorry, in particular, their captain as well, who had been like a club man through and through, devastated. But yeah, another heartbreak ending of which, of course, in our wonderful sport, there are many. Um, look, we've just about run out of time. So we'll talk about the Champions League semi-finals, I'm sure, at length on Thursday as well with Manchester City and Chelsea in action. But Matt Dickinson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with me for the past uh, hour or so. Enlightening as ever. And thank you all for listening as well. Remember, uh, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And make sure you're subscribed to our award-winning journalism from the times and the sunday times as well if you sign up today you'll get one month three go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started we will see you on thursday
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.